presence. Let's turn our full attention now to the Word of God and our Old Testament reading, which is from Exodus 24. Exodus 24, it's page 72 in the Church Bible. This is God's Word. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Then the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Our New Testament text is Matthew seventeen, one through thirteen. This is to be our sermon text this morning. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. 
And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray now together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your holy word. Your precious, life-giving, powerful, wise, perfect, sufficient, clear revelation of you, of ourselves, and of the way into heaven. We thank you that you have shown us our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts by your all-powerful spirit with your word and work in us true saving faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How well do you listen to Jesus? How carefully do you listen to Christ? How much thought and attention and intention do you give to listening to Jesus? Not just hearing his words um, and, you know, understanding in your brain what his words mean, but listening to him with your whole being, listening to everything that he's saying, carefully listening to his word and and trusting him and following him. You could have um, you could have the Bible memorized and not do that. This is more than simply um, uh, uh, knowing the word in your in your in your mind. You've got to know it, it through and through, and walk by it, live by it. This has been a key question that's that, that we've seen already in Matthew's gospel. How well do you listen to Jesus? Um, remember the parable of the sower back in chapter thirteen. That parable is all about how you hear, how you listen. Right, there's these four different soils, and Jesus is saying these all represent four different ways of listening to Jesus Christ. Uh, there's the hard-hearted, where the word bounces off, right? doesn't take root at all. There's the, there's the soil that's shallow, the, the, the seed sprouts up quickly, but then it withers because it has no root. Trials, tribulations, suffering, difficulty comes, uh, and that's, that's the end of that faith. Uh, there's other... Uh, there's other people who, who hear Christ's word and, and they, they trust, they obey, they follow for a little while, but then the cares and concerns of the world choke that out like, like weeds. And then there are those, finally, who listen and who trust and who follow. And we see this in the different responses to Jesus in the Gospel, right? Uh, we see so many people apparently hearing Jesus, but not really hearing Jesus. You've got the Pharisees. They can hear the words. Their ears are working. Their brains are interpreting the words in the correct way that they're hearing. But there's no faith there. There's no love there. There's just jealousy. 
and hatred and resistance and anger against Christ. Might as well be completely deaf to Jesus. And you've got the crowds. The crowds hear Jesus, right? They love to listen to him. They love to hear some of the things he says. They love that he heals them and he feeds them. But so many of them, it's just this surface thing. And it is going to, their, their faith is going to wither. They're not listening with real care and thoughtfulness and humility to what Jesus is revealing about himself. They've still got their own idea of what the Christ is. And they're, they're filtering everything Jesus is saying through that and not really listening to who he is in himself. And then you have the disciples themselves, and, and they're a little better. Right? There, there's real saving faith there in most of them. Um, they, 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 uh, they do hear, in a sense, Jesus says, Blessed are your ears, for you hear. Matthew 13, 16. Uh, they, they've, they've just confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? So there is, there is listening there. But over and over, right, Jesus still also calls them little faiths. Little faiths. Partial listening, partial understanding. In the last section in Matthew's Gospel, just prior to this, we saw that um, Jesus starts telling him them that the cro- the, being the Christ requires the cross, and they don't want to hear any of that. They're not listening well to him. And so Jesus is trying to teach them to listen because they're going to need to listen. They're going to need to know him and trust him and rely on him. They're heading down. They're up in the northern part of, of Galilee. They were way up in Caesarea Philippi, very, very tip top of, of the, the region of Israel. Now they're heading down towards Jerusalem. And it's there in Jerusalem that Jesus will be betrayed and crucified and, and, and buried. And the disciples are going to scatter. And then, of course, after that, he'll be raised from the dead and the disciples will be equipped as his witnesses. But they're going to be facing persecution themselves as they go out to bear witness to Christ. They are going to need a firm foundation. They're going to need something to hold on to. They're going to need reassurance. They need deep conviction about who Jesus is. Uh, they, are, they, are going to, um, they are going to be uh, called to take up their cross and follow him. So they need to know who he is if they're going to do that and if they're going to be sustained in that. Brothers and sisters, uh, there is nothing more important for these disciples than to listen to him and know who he is. That they need to have their roots sunk down deep in the, in the rich and firm soil of the truth of who he is so they can survive and endure and even thrive in, in what's what's ahead of them. And brothers and sisters, uh, there is nothing more important for us than that. For you and your family and for our church. And to know who Jesus is. To know it with deep conviction. That's what we need in the days ahead. Three things then the passage here teaches us about who Jesus is. Three truths, three lessons that the Mount of Transfiguration teaches us. Um, and in light of these things, we're called to listen to Christ. Number one, Jesus is the promised final prophet. Jesus is the promised final prophet. This is the first lesson we learn in the Mount of Transfiguration here as we see what's going on. Jesus is the promised final prophet. Now, if you uh, told this to a Jew living during Jesus' day, if, if, you, said, if you said this, there's a great prophet who goes up a mountain, takes a few companions with him. They go up. They see the glory of God. They, 
cloud comes down over them, this bright cloud of glory, and they hear the voice of God himself speaking. And then this great prophet, his face starts shining like the sun. They would think of Moses, right? Um, If you told a first century Jewish audience these things, that's exactly what they'd think of. Oh, you're, you're you're talking about Moses, right? Exodus 24, he goes up the mountain. He sees the face of God. The glory cloud comes down over the mountain. The voice of God thunders out from it. And then later on, chapter 34, we read that Moses' face shone like the sun with brightness from his time in the presence face to face with God. Exodus 34 says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Moses is a great, he, he, he is the prophet in the Old Testament. Right? He, he is the great deliverer, the, the one who really reveals God's uh, truth and grace and glory. There was never a prophet like this who had an experience like this. But Moses had promised that there would be a prophet like him. Deuteronomy 18.50, Moses tells the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, he says. And and Israel has all these prophets. After Moses, they come and they go, and they share many similarities with Moses, mighty in word, mighty in deed, but none of them rises to the level uh, that that Moses uh, had, had attained. Uh, right. Moses led the people out of Egypt. He gives the people the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Never did Israel see a prophet who was so close to God, who spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend and uh, who revealed so much of the glory of God. But Moses said, a prophet like me will arise. And now we see it. It's Jesus. He goes up a mountain. He hears the voice of the Lord. The cloud of glory symbolizing the presence of God comes down over the mountain and his face is shining like the sun. This is the prophet. He's even greater than Moses. The long-promised, long-awaited prophet. And the the words that God speaks from the cloud are so similar, actually, aren't they, to Moses' prophecy about the prophet who would come in in Deuteronomy 18. Um, Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, It is to him you shall listen. And then the Lord says from the cloud, listen to him. He's here. And all, all of this is made even more clear for us by the appearance there on the Mount of Transfiguration of Moses and Elijah. They're, they're, they're both suddenly there. Right? This is just sheer supernatural stuff, isn't it? Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah standing there with Jesus. Moses, of course... The great prophet who brings the people out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, into the pro- to the promised land, and and gives them the, the the Torah. Elijah, a great prophet as well, who does, does these mighty miracles. He might have been the closest to rivaling what Moses had accomplished, as he endeavored to to direct Israel back to the Lord. Um, uh, but but uh, but but now here they are. They're both speaking with Jesus. Moses represents the law. The uh, first five books, Elijah represents the prophets, the rest of the word of God. And, and, and this is all communicating to us this wonderful truth. Jesus is the great final prophet who has promised the, the definitive final revelation 
of God. Hebrews 1.1 says it like this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Jesus is the authoritative, final revelation He's bringing, he's bringing something greater than Moses and something greater than Elijah. He's restoring. He, he, he's, he's bringing the kingdom of heaven itself uh, to, to, to his people. Um, all, all of this is showing us, loved ones, that, that everything Moses and Elijah did and said and the whole Old Testament itself really represented in them was, was leading to this moment, pointing to it, fulfilled in the coming of Christ, every word of it pointing forward to, Lord, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting as we think about it. So we have this scene, Jesus on the mountain, Moses, Elijah representing the whole Old Testament there with Jesus, and the disciples see this. It's interesting that in verse 8, after the vision ends, we get this little detail on the narrative that, uh, that the disciples look up after the terrifying vision, and it says this, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah have been superseded. Right? They've been fulfilled. Uh, some, something greater has come. The fulfillment has come. Uh, Jesus, right? The, Moses and Elijah are like the moon. Reflective light. Right? Bright at nighttime. Right? In the Old Testament, it's, it's like that. It's dark, but you've got this bright light of the revelation of God, and it seems, it seems good, bright, beautiful, sufficient, but then the sun comes up. And you can't even see the moon anymore. Because the brilliant light, it's the same light, but now it's there in all its full force. And Jesus Christ, the revelation of God's glory and grace and truth. The point, loved ones, as God Himself tells us in this text, is listen to Him. He is the great final revelation, the authoritative Word of God. Listen to him. Don't look for more. In addition, it's not like you say, all right, so we've heard enough about Jesus. What else do you have to say, God? No, he's spoken to us in his son. What more does he have to say and give to us? He has given us the last best word, the authoritative, sufficient word of who he is and all that he's done. So listen, trust, follow, obey, hear, study him. Our Lord Jesus Christ, order your life by His Word. That's the first lesson here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Second is this. Jesus is the glorious Son of God. So He's the great final prophet. He's also the glorious Son of God. What we're seeing here is all this typology being fulfilled of, of Moses uh, in Jesus Christ. But there's so much more as well to what we're seeing here. We're seeing the revelation of Christ as actually God Himself, the eternal divine Son. Uh, two points in the text make it clear that what we're seeing is, is, is God Himself uh, in Jesus Christ. Um, verse 2 says this, He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. Uh, earlier we noticed the comparison, right? Moses, his face shone when he came down from the mountain after speaking with God, but that was derived glory. It was reflective. Um, Jesus, 
His face isn't shining because he's been standing in the presence of God. His face is shining because he is God. Right? He's the original. The glory that is coming from him that, that is being seen here, this, this curtain being pulled back and the disciples given this vision of his eternal glory as the Son of God from all eternity. Right? He, the great I Am. He's not just, uh, he's not just another prophet. He's God. This is why Peter's idea, let's build three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus, is, is kind of a lame idea. Uh, because they're not equals. He's not just another prophet. He is God Himself. He is the I Am. Moses' face shone because he saw this face back in Exodus 34. So we're seeing God here. Second, of course, and most definitively for us is God's Word in verse 5. This cloud of glory hovers over uh, Jesus and, and Elijah and Moses, and God's own voice thunders out from the cloud. It says, He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. They're just staggering words. God Himself says, This is my Son. What does that mean? That He's the Son of God. This is giving us this window into the relation of the Father and the Son from all eternity. With these words, uh, God is saying, Jesus, Jesus is, 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 is my Son, the eternally begotten Son of God. He's the Son. That doesn't make Him inferior to the Father, but He's been eternally generated by the Father. He's the eternally begotten Son of God. This is one of the deepest doctrines in all the Christian faith. The eternal generation of the Son. By calling Him His Son, God is not saying that He's in any way inferior. He's actually saying He's, he's equal to me. He is of the very same nature as me. Uh, one theologian, Robert Lethem, puts it like this. He says, Fathers generate sons who are of the same nature. Consequently, the Son is of the same nature as the Father. He is one with God eternally and indivisibly. His generation by the Father establishes this point. Generation entails identity of nature. It shows that whoever has seen the Son has seen the Father. It proves that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of what God is like. It means that God is just like Jesus. Or as we sing every Christmas and uh, in the great carol, God of God, light of light, very God, begotten, not created. That's Jesus. He is God, generated by the Father, eternally generated by the Father, without beginning and without end. And um, as the eternal Son of the eternal Father, he is the beloved of the Father. He is the one in whom God has delighted for all eternity with an everlasting, boundless, limitless love, a love that is coterminous with the infinite being of God. These are beyond anything we can comprehend or fathom with our minds. Leads us to say, uh, as it says in the book of Job, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? We cannot comprehend the Trinity. 
the relation of the Father and the Son from all eternity together with the Holy Spirit. We cannot wrap our tiny little finite minds around the infinite being and majesty of the eternal God. And we shouldn't. We can't. We worship Him for this. It's no wonder that even as God says, this is my Son, Peter, James, and John fall down on their faces in worship, in terrified worship. And so should we, full of awe. When you see Jesus, you see the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is God. Therefore, as God says again, verse 5, listen to him. Listen to him. This is, this is, this is God's, God is saying, because he's my son, listen to him. This is how you respond when you realize Jesus is God. You listen. You trust. You follow Him. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you the question again. Are you listening to Him? How well are you listening to God? How well you listen to someone depends on how important you think what they have to say is, right? You listen to that doctor with 25 years of experience more than you listen to the brand new nurse. You listen to the four-star general who's been through the thick of it more than you listen to the private still wet behind the ears. How well you listen to someone depends on how trustworthy and how influential you think they are. How well do you listen to Jesus? He is God. This is what we need. This is what the disciples need. They are going to need this as they head into the days ahead. Um, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again, but then they themselves are going to be sent out as witnesses, as we say, uh, said, and most of them will be martyred, and um, uh, all of them are going to suffer for, for Christ. They need to hold on to the identity of Jesus and keep on listening to him. So, brothers and sisters, Don't listen to your circumstances. Don't listen to your heart. Don't listen to the world around you. Listen to Christ Jesus. So, the two things we've seen so far. Jesus is the promised final prophet. And then the second thing, Jesus is the glorious Son of God. The third great truth about our Lord Jesus, which we learn here on the Mount of Transfiguration, is that Jesus is the suffering Son of Man. Jesus is the suffering Son of Man. Pick up with me uh, in in verse 6. The disciples are flat on their faces, terrified, worshiping, but afraid. Um, uh, But then the vision ends. And Jesus comes to them, His face no longer shining with this glory, but veiled again. And, And Jesus comes to where they're lying on the ground. What does He do? Matthew is the only gospel who includes this little detail. Jesus touches them. Uh, it just um, reminds you of the historicity of the account, right? Just They remembered this. Peter, James, and John were the only three there. Um, but uh, Matthew, one of the other disciples who wasn't there, must have been talking with them at one point and, and about, about what happened there. And, and, uh, and, and as one of them, Peter, James, or John, told Matthew the story, there must have been something like this. We were, we were there. We were lying on the ground. We were terrified. We were in awe. We heard the very voice of God. We saw the face of Jesus Christ shining like the sun. We were too scared to look up. And then the next thing I knew, Jesus touched me. 
He came over. God of God touched me. What an impression this made. And then, and then his, his words to them, Arise, do not be afraid. The one who had just a moment before, right, his face shining like this sun, revealed as very God of very God, now comes over to these disciples and he gently touches them and, and comforts them and tells them not to fear. The wonder of this is not lost on these three men. We see later on in, in the Apostle John's writings, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-2, through 2, he writes this. Um, he says, "...that which was from the beginning..." God, right? That which is from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. John's saying we touched God, eternal life, and he touched us. We saw him, we spoke with him, we ate with him, and Eddie condescended so breathtakingly to be with us. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. Very God of very God and very man at the same time. Right after, um, right after this, so Jesus, he, he, he veils his glory. Uh, the vision ends. He, he, he appears uh, to be uh, just as he was before. Uh, and he's, he's leading his disciples down the mountain. And, and now, how does he refer to himself as the Son of Man? as the Son of Man. Um, This suggests that when God spoke from heaven about Jesus uh, as His beloved Son, He also had in mind, not only is this My Son according to the divine nature, but even according to His human nature, Jesus is is God's Son. Um, Throughout Scripture, we see God's Son in in various ways. We we see uh, Adam is called God's Son. Because he reflects in a creaturely way the Creator. He bears the image of God. He represents God. He's supposed to rule on behalf of God over the, over the Garden of Eden. He fails, of course. God raises up Israel. He calls Israel his son. He's supposed to reflect him in a creaturely way. He's supposed to serve him, follow him, represent him, and, uh, and bless the world for his sake. Israel also fails. But God promises a son of man, a human, but one who will come and reign as the great king and represent him rightly and be the true Israel. We see this in Daniel 7, 13-14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Son of man will come. That's the prophecy. A man who serves as God's king, God's son, true Israel, as it were. And Jesus is saying, that that is also my identity. I'm the divine son of God and the image-bearing human son of God. Both. Son of man as well. But this is only part of the picture of what the Son of Man is. And, and as Jesus is talking about this with His disciples, uh, he, He's telling them that yet again he's, he's going to suffer as the Son of Man. Um, and, and this also is, is part, of, uh, part of what was promised. Um, as, as they're coming down the mountain, the disciples have this question. They've just seen Elijah with Jesus on the mountain. 
They're saying, why, you know, it seems like something's not quite lining up. We thought Elijah was going to come before the Son of Man in his glorious kingdom came. We thought, we thought Elijah was going to come, and Jesus says he did. It was John the Baptist, um, uh, he indicates, as they come to understand. Um, he was the forerunner, but he wasn't welcomed with open arms. He was, he was beheaded. He was rejected and, 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 and beheaded. He says they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished in verse 12. And then Jesus connects the dots. So this is how they treated the forerunner of the Son of Man and his kingdom. So this is how they're also going to treat the Son of Man himself. They're going to uh, cause him to suffer. Jesus says the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. This defies every expectation the disciples have had and that the Jews have had as well. That the Son of Man is going to be the suffering one. Um, right? the, and the, the great King who brings in the final victory and world peace is going to be the one who suffers. This is not what they expected, but this is uh, embedded in the very words of God. Again, these words of God in verse 5 are so central to this whole this whole passage. But in verse 5, God says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So he's declaring Christ's divinity. But those words, with whom I'm well pleased, are an echo of, of God's words about his servant, his human servant, in the servant songs of Isaiah. Back in Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And it's the same servant who will be talked about in Isaiah 53 as the one who suffers for his people. So this is at the heart of who Jesus is. Also, yes, the great final prophet, authoritative word, glorious Son of God and the Son of Man, who's both the king and the suffering servant at the same time. The one who came to suffer for us and die for us. Take our sin, take our guilt on himself and bear the price for our sins. The one who perfectly obeyed his father for us, who perfectly kept his commandments for us. He was faithful, he was perfect, righteous and holy in every part of his being. And then he died for us, for you and for me. Yes, the glorious Son of God, very God of very God, took on flesh to die for your sins. All this is what is being shown to us here. But why does Jesus put all these things together? Right? There, there are so many layers in this story. There's so much we are learning and seeing here about Christ. But why, why does God bring all this together for the disciples, um, and for us. Why in the same breath does God identify Jesus as the glorious Son of God and also the suffering servant and the Son of Man? Because, because he, again, he wants them to hold on to what they're seeing and what they're learning here. Um, he wants us as well to hold on to what we're learning here. And that is that this is also a promise. The glory of Christ that we see in the text here on the Mount of Transfiguration is not just a glimpse into eternity past of the glory of Christ. It's also a glimpse into the future when we see Christ come in all his glory soon. Um, we see this if we look at a text like Revelation 21, 23, um, which says the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The transfiguration is the promise of that to the disciples. 
as they're heading into persecution, as they're heading into witness bearing. Remember what you saw. Christ is the one who will come again in all His glory. They're going to need this reassurance as they see Christ go to the cross, see Him buried. They're going to need this reassurance after His resurrection and they themselves are sent out for His sake to bear witness to Him. John uh, will be exiled in the island of Patmos. Peter will be crucified upside down. James will be beheaded. They've got to hold on to this. Who Jesus is. And the promise that He is going to come in His glory. And they're going to see His face shine just like they saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. But forever and ever and ever as the One whose very glory lights the new heavens and the new earth. What reassurance here for them. But perhaps you respond to it all by saying, well, yeah, it'd be a great reassurance if I'd been there. If I saw it. Why did he only take three disciples up? Why not all twelve? Why not show the whole nation of Israel? Because they'll misunderstand it, of course. But why doesn't he give us something like this? Why don't, why don't we see, why, why don't we see a glory cloud come down over the church and hear the voice of God itself thundering out of that cloud? Why don't we get to see a vision of heaven opened and the Son of Man and all His glory there? Right, where's the reassurance for us? Right, if we saw that, then we wouldn't doubt and hesitate. We'd have complete confidence. Peter himself seems to be answering this question as he writes one of his letters to a church. Second Peter chapter 1. 17 to 19. He's reflecting on his experience in the Mount of Transfiguration and the reassurance of it. And he says this to the church. He says, When Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. Peter says, we heard the voice. We were there. We're testifying about it to you. But there is something more sure for the church than the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the word of the risen Christ. He's been raised from the dead. He's poured out His Spirit and He's given us His word. And it is sure. This is what Peter is saying. We have seen the Word of God all brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And now you've, you've got this, 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 this Word of God which is even a, a more sure foundation than an experience like the Mount of Transfiguration. You've got the very Word of God in your hands when you hold the Bible. A sure foundation for your faith. A rock-solid place to stand. The very Word of God. Not just the Word about Christ, but the very Word from Christ, written by His Spirit. So when you get up in the morning, getting ready for your day, you see the very Word of God sitting there on your nightstand. Open it up and listen to what Jesus says. And when you come to the church on Sunday, and you hear the word read, and you hear the word preached. It's the very word of Christ. The very word of Jesus Christ to his people as he speaks his word here. So, loved ones, um, 
Keep your ears open. Listen to His Word. Give your heart to His Word. Study His Word. This is the solid foundation. This is the rich, good, firm soil. Sink your roots down into it. Know Him. Listen to Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. That is what will keep you. Listen to Him. You're going to need it. Listen to Christ. Let's pray together. Thank You for Your Word, O Lord. Thank You that You've revealed Yourself to us in such glory and in such truth and in such grace. Father, we pray You grant our hearts faith in You, trusting, listening ears. We know this is not something that we can muster up the ability for on our own. But, O God, it is only something that You, by Your sovereign grace, can accomplish. So work powerfully in our hearts, we pray. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.